And please take your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Again, we read the scripture this morning already. I want to introduce this message by emphasizing that we are addressing the last two miracles that are recorded there in Luke chapter 8. And to briefly review, here Jesus had admonished his disciples there in uh, chapter 8, verse 18, take care how you hear. If you have ears to hear, then you will hear the message that God has. And therefore, if you have ears to hear, then you're admonished to take care how you hear. And he followed this admonition by testing the disciples. He had full authority over all things. He's the king, the king of all. And this authority then was demonstrated in the power he displayed over demons, disease, and death. All should recognize this truth and respond by submitting to the king in humble trust in every circumstance of life, especially salvation. Now, in chapter 8, Luke displayed Jesus' authority in five cases. We looked at three of those last week. He declared his lordship over our domestic lives by declaring that his mother and brothers were those who heard his word and kept it. That was chapters, uh, verses number 19 through 21 of chapter 8. Second, he demonstrated his, author, his absolute authority over detrimental nature by stilling the roaring wind and the raging seas. He just woke up and said, be quiet, and whew, it was done. That was verses 22 to 25. Then, thirdly, he demanded obedience and submission of demons that were terrorizing the people of Gadara. Then, in verses 26 through 39. Then, and this is where we take up today, he, he returns across the sea to Galilee. And apparently there was no storm in their return. But as he returned, he then compassionately heals a poor woman of her stubborn disease. And in verses 42 to 48. And last, number five, Jesus displayed his power over death again by graciously restoring the life of a distraught father's only daughter. In verses 49 through 56, these last two as the ones we take up today. But before addressing that, I want to show you how these two things are intertwined. But before we do that, a brief review of the overall picture here that Luke is painting about the kingdom of God as it is important that we need keep this, this correct perspective of King Jesus in our minds. So first of all, note here the wisdom that is to be justified by her children. In Luke chapter 7, I'm going clear back into Luke chapter 7 here, we have a reference to we need to understand about those who reject the counsel of God revealed in His Word. 
Jesus had explained that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. What did he mean by that? In uh, chapter 7, verse 28 there, that's what he said. And then, so those who believe in John's message agreed, thereby justifying God, we read. The next verse. What they meant by that was that uh, they were declaring that what God does is right in every circumstance. But there were those who listened and, did, and rejected that. This included the scribes and the Pharisees who denied the message and because of that rejected the whole counsel of God thereby the purpose of God for themselves. That's chapter 7 verse 30. And Jesus compared these deniers, this he calls them this generation, to fickle children. And they did this by showing their duplistic response to God's messengers throughout their own history and particularly the last two prophets that, is, that were presented to them, Jesus and John. They, they showed this petulance of little children when Jesus and John refused to play their game. And so because of this refusing, made Jesus and John objects of their taunts and their disgust. They criticized them by exaggerating their habits. They called John's asceticism demonic. And But Jesus' normal habits of eating and drinking, they called gluttony and drunkenness. Jesus concluded by saying, that wisdom is justified by all her children. Meaning that those who rightly responded to the purpose of God proved its righteousness by showing their obedience to the word and thus justifying God. Is that what we do? Is that what we do? This incident then was followed by something that illustrated the point. Jesus was anointed by a woman who had a reputation of being a great sinner. At least that is how she was judged by the Pharisee Simon who invited Jesus to come and to dine with him. The incident revealed the hearts of both the woman and the Pharisee in their respective relationships to Jesus. How much did they love him? The woman gave evidence of true saving faith by her lavish demonstration of gratitude and love to Jesus in forgiving her sins. Simon, on the other hand, was also forgiven, not of great sins, but of neglect in providing the basic amenities to welcome a guest into his home. We would ask, was this neglect deliberate? We don't know, but his motive, although unrevealed, however, was an offense, which Jesus forgave. But Simon showed his gratitude by little love to Jesus as Jesus pointed out. 
The woman, however, stepped in and outdid herself compensating for Simon's neglect. She understood that in the purpose of God, the Savior had erased her monumental debt to God. We know this because Jesus announced to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. There in verse 48. However, the, attendee, the other attendees listening reacted among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? This was a wake-up moment for them. Who is this that forgives sins? And thus, the uh, title of the message, Who is this? And this is part two. This was also the reaction of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm there in verse 25. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water to obey him? In chapter 8, verse 25. Who is this? Who is it? This is King Jesus. And what has he done for you? And how have you responded to, uh, in gratitude, in love, and in obedience to him? In chapter 7, Luke began here recording a series of events in which Jesus dealt with various human needs to demonstrate this purpose of God and that he was the, uh, with respect to the kingdom of God and showing that he was the king. He was the king. And that he was there to restore the damage done by the invasion of sin into the world. He's going to do battle with the agents of evil. In the first incident, we had there the healing of the centurion servant. That was back in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. And soon afterwards, we read, Jesus traveled to the town of Nain where he restored the life of a widow's only son. In, in verses, there in chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. The record of this tour then was interrupted when the disciples of John, witnessing the miracles of healing and restoration, reported them to the imprisoned John the Baptist, there in chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. This report raised questions in John's mind about what was taking place. Although John, as the messianic forerunner, had announced that Jesus was the Christ Messiah, his preconceived expectations of how that kingdom would appear seemed to trigger in him a need for some reassurance. Thus he sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's verse 19. How did Jesus treat him, treat these this question and these disciples, this messenger sent to him with compassion. He said, come, I'm going to show you some." And then he went and healed many, it says. And after he healed them, he turned and sent them away with this message, go tell John what you have seen and heard. In other words, what I have done here is fulfilled 
the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. You witness that. You go tell John that you have witnessed my fulfilling them. And then he said, blessed is the one who does not stumble due to his faulty understanding of me. That is, his wrong expectations of the Savior. What are your expectations of Jesus? Is he fulfilling those expectations or are you troubled? And do you need reassurance like John? So when the disciples left John, uh, left there to, uh, excuse me, Jesus to return to John, Jesus began to address the crowd about John. The significance of this lesson had to do with their own faulty expectations of Messiah and his kingdom. John was the last Old Testament prophet. And he came announcing the day of the Lord against the nation of Israel due to their covenant failures. And because of this, God was going to close the Old Covenant era, period. The Old Covenant was ready to vanish away. In its place, Jesus would inaugurate the New Covenant with a glorious hope of a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwelt. Those who believed his word became new covenant members and they would enjoy the, these greater privileges. Greater privileges than John. And this included those who repented at John's preaching and gave evidence of their being of it by their being baptized by him. And so we read there in verse 29, in this they justified God. They declared God right in what he was doing. But the Pharisees listening and the scribes, the lawyers, they rejected this purpose of God for their lives condemning them to the judgment that John had warned them was coming. So each here account that Luke documents reveals the glorious truth of the authority of the king and his sovereign rule over every consequence of sin in the world. Every miracle, every miracle was a promise and a preview of the glorious restoration promised to this fallen world. Think of that. Peter summed it up by uh, this purpose of God there in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 10, he, re he wrote, The day, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That's judgment. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I wonder if we're in that period of exposure now. There's lots of stuff coming to light that has been hidden from us. Not reported on by the news media, but becoming clear about the motives 
and purposes of those who govern us. God said it would all be exposed. Nothing hidden that's hidden will be will remain that will be brought to light and exposed. And this was the message of John the Baptist. The consequence of this purging was the restoration of all things. And so we read there in verse 13 of 2 Peter 3, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And thus, Peter concluded this exhortation there in verse 14 with this, since you are waiting for these. Are you, are you waiting for them? I am. I'm anxious for them. I can't wait. <laughs> Bring them on. Bring them on. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count that the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's patient. Not like us. I'm, I'm very impatient. I confess my sin. I am very impatient. So the question is, will you heed this exhortation? Then I go back to Luke 8.18. 8, Take care how you hear. So with that, then, let's take up these final two events that close chapter 8. And this I title, The Welcoming of a Waiting Crowd. The Welcome of a Waiting Crowd. In verse 14 here, or excuse me, verse 40, provides here the setting for the final two examples of Jesus' revelation of his messianic mission. This is what it's all about. It's the revelation of Jesus' messianic mission to prove to the world that he is the king of all the earth. So there in verses 40 through 46, this and this is what began there in the first verses of, of chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. So the narrative then involves an interesting pattern of, alter, of alternation here involving two separate incidents, but combining them into one setting. And the setting is introduced uh, by these words, when, now when Jesus returns, now when Jesus returns. And these words connect what follows with what preceded the power and compassion of Jesus will again be on display to a warm and welcoming crowd waiting for him notice that what caused them to wait for the savior i believe it's because of his recent restoration of the demon possessed man at gadara seems to have provoked this crowd's enthusiasm for the returning company. There was great expectation of Jesus continuing to display his divine power. And this expectation then uh, is introduced here when Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, approached Jesus and fell at his feet 
out of respect and in hope that his request would be honored. He begged Jesus, literally begged him, to come and heal his only daughter. The, the Greek word there is monogenes, which means one and only daughter. He only had one child, a daughter, a 12-year-old young lady. And she was sick and at the point of dying. And his heart was broken. And he was desperate. And he came to plead with Jesus, Come, Lord, fix this for me. And Jesus immediately set out to the man's house to fulfill his request. Matthew, it's interesting here in uh, the English Standard Version, records Jairus as saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay hand on her and she will live. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. This kind of presents a problem to the reader because she was not yet dead. So the question here is, is this a, is this a contradiction? And, and I say no, and the reason I say no is because the Greek there is very clear. The Greek there is very clear. And the translation should be, my daughter is at the point of dying. So there's no contradiction between these accounts. And as I said, Jesus responded by going with him immediately. His disciples following him and the crowd pressing in around him as they progressed. And this brings in then the second uh, thing here, and that is uh, the opportunity for a woman with an issue of blood, probably due to her being a female. And she came in behind Jesus, believing that Jesus could heal her. But, if she, but she, her faith was this, that if I could just but touch the fringe of his robe, his outer garment, she would be healed. And I, I want to point out here something I thought that was found interesting. This woman's condition plagued her for how long? Twelve years. How old was Jairus' daughter? Twelve years. Is there a coincidence here? Now, the woman's condition was such that under the old covenant, in fact, we read that this morning in our, in our scripture reading, there in the book of Leviticus, that because of her blood issue, she was unclean, ceremonially unclean. And she had been that way now for 12 years. So for, for Jesus to touch her then would render him unclean. The text is really silent about her motive. But it may be that that's what she was thinking, that if she could avoid the problem here, if he, but, and she could do so but if she just touched the fringe of his garment. She wouldn't really be actually touching him and therefore rendering him unclean. But if she could just touch the fringe of his garment, she could receive healing and 
leave him ceremonially clean. But I, I would also point out to you that Jesus had no qualms about touching the leper or other unclean people, which would be the deceased, the bodies of the dead, which then would also make him ceremonially unclean. But she was desperate. She had spent all her living on physicians. Luke here is a doctor. And he points this out. She spent all her living and no with no positive result. Doctors do their best, but they're, but they're not miracle workers by any means. They had been helpless to bring about a cure. So she touched his, the hem of his garment there, the fringe on his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And I think uh, she was thinking, okay, it's done and I'm good. Let's go home. <laughs> but Jesus said, no, who touched me? There in verse 45. The question is, how did he know? And why did he ask this question? Who touched me? Some commentators suggest that, uh, this, that God... Had, deliberately through the Holy Spirit pre prevented the, the man, Christ Jesus, from certain knowledge. And we know this to be a fact because in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus plainly states that no man knows the day nor the hour of his return, not even the Son of Man. Jesus didn't know. But I don't really think that's the issue here. I think Jesus knew who touched him. And that's the point here, which makes it, which makes it interesting because he wanted her to publicly express her faith. Now, how did he know? He, he explained that power had gone out of him. He knew that power had gone out of him. And that also presents somewhat of a question. What, what is that all about? This miracle working is not some magical thing. It's not power in that sense. I believe that what he was referring to was the work of the Holy Spirit. He knew that the Spirit of God had healed that woman. And he knew that healing power had gone out from him due to the woman's touch of faith. But he wanted this woman to acknowledge the miracle publicly. And the disciples, they said, Lord, you, you, you see what's going on around here? I mean, this great crowd, they're pressing in on us. We're, we're jostling each other. How, what do you mean? Who touched you? <laughs> it could be anybody. But Jesus knew. And that woman suddenly realized that, that she was not hidden. So she fell at Jesus' feet, just like Jairus. And she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. There, verse number 47. 
Yeah, Jesus wanted a public declaration of her faith. And he responded to this with a compassionate response. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Verse 48. And But at that very moment, see this, this little pause here. We don't know just how much time passed here, but... But uh, this, this interruption by this woman here then is brought to an end. And what happens here is that uh, messengers from Jairus' home come to intercept them. And they said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. But Jesus said, hey, don't fear Jairus. Your daughter will be okay. Your daughter's going to be okay. And then what, what we have now here is a turn of events that frankly I'm at a loss to explain. In contrast to the clear effort to make Jesus' messianic public works public information to produce wonder and praise to the God of heaven, the healing of Jairus' daughter is kept private for only her parents and three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. Why this inner circle? It's the same inner circle that, that he took with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? And what here we have this clear thing. And Jesus explicitly charged them after he raised this girl from the dead, the mourners, I think mourners had already come to the house to uh, begin the process of mourning so that she could be then transported to the family tomb. And when Jesus said, uh, they said, she's dead. Jesus said, no, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, Jesus wasn't lying either because death is all often referred to as sleeping. Just read Paul there in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four about those who sleep in Jesus, and Jesus re said the same thing about Lazarus. He said he he's sleeping, and they said, "Well, good. Let he's let him take his rest." And Jesus, no, no, he's dead. But I'm I'm going to go to now to wake him up. It's the same thing here. No, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Oh. <laughs> Were they going to be surprised when she walks out the door? <laughs> ah. But he explicitly charged them to tell no one what had happened. That was it. He took her by the hand and said, Rise. And that little girl woke up, and then she said, "Give her, give her something to eat. She's a, she's just, she's a preteen here, and she needs food. <laughs> Feed her. She's hungry." But that was it. And Luke doesn't explain anything at all. He just moves on in his narrative, documenting 
They're the uh, sending out of the twelve apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God with authority over demons and the power to heal diseases again. And as we open chapter 9. So, by way of conclusion, this girl's being raised from the dead points to the kingdom's restoration as well. And I think it in, in an interesting way. She was 12 years of age. She was at that age which, at which it was acceptable for young Jewish maidens to marry. And I think all this points to God's purpose to establish the kingdom of God in the restoration of all things. The healing of disease speaks of sin and its adverse effects on the human race. His raising of Jairus' daughter speaks of the resurrection promised to all his redeemed children. We, we, we may sleep the sleep of death, but the day is coming. There is a day in which all that are in the tomb shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who are redeemed will be raised to eternal life. Those who have rejected Him will be raised to eternal damnation. Notice, not not to uh, be annihilated, but to be, but to suffer eternal damnation. And notice, I think there's an interesting comparison. Jairus called this girl his only daughter, his monogenes. That word is used of the Savior in John chapter 3. God loved the world in this way that He gave His only Son, His monogenes, His one and only Son, that the ones believing in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I think there is an interesting correspondence of that as well, that she represents, in, in, in effect, the church, His bride, called out of eternal uh, death, uh, called out of death to eternal life that will be fully realized in the resurrection and glorification of their bodies. And so thus Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 to 58, the sting of death is sin. What causes death? It's sin. And the power of sin is, is in the law, the old covenant. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, canceling the power of sin. Wow. So therefore, Paul says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 56-58. Are you ready for that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for the opportunity we've had here to consider this wonderful truth set forth. To see Jesus in His glory. 
to see Jesus prove beyond a question of a doubt that he is the king of glory. That he has authority over everything. Over demons, death, and disease. He has authority over us as well. Lord, we bow the knee. As Paul said, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we praise you in his name. Amen.